WNYC is teaming up with NPR to bring you a new daily podcast, Consider This. We'll bring you the biggest news stories and what's happening in our community to help you make sense of the day. Subscribe to Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Leopard by Wells Tower, which was published in The New Yorker in November of 2008. Your hatred of your stepfather is all-consuming and unceasing, but this is only because your world is still small, and your stepfather assumes an outsized significance in the story of your life. The story was chosen by David Sedaris, who's the author of 10 books, including Me Talk Pretty One Day, when you're engulfed in flames, and let's explore diabetes with owls. Hi, David. Hi, Deborah. So last year, 2017, marked the 10th anniversary of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, and we did a listener's choice poll and asked our audience to vote for their favorite episode from the last decade, and they chose your podcast of Miranda July's story, Roy Spivey. Oh, that's awfully nice. I mean, it's a fantastic story. (laughs) It is. And that was a podcast from 2012. Now, other than your um, genius, of course, do you think there's a reason that that particular episode hit a nerve with listeners? Uh, Well, no, I think it's just because it's such a strong story. Yeah. I mean, I listened to the podcast, and, you know, there are a lot of great stories out there. You know, I mean, that's the thing. It's a New Yorker, right? So (laughs) it's full of great stories, but... That doesn't mean that they're all great to be read out loud. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I thought that when I read Miranda's story in the magazine, it just seemed like the kind of story that would work out loud or would work on stage. Mm-hmm. She builds a rapport with the reader, of the same rapport you could build with an audience. You know, after I recorded the Miranda July thing, I did a show in Los Angeles, and she came to it, and I'd never met her. And... She approached me afterwards, and she said, I have a gift for you. She said, don't open it now. Open it later in your hotel room. And so I did, and it was a clothes steamer, and it was like the size of a thermos, and it was pink plastic, and you just filled it with water, and you steam your clothes. (laughs) (laughs) And it was like what you'd get your sister-in-law for Christmas. (laughs) And it it made me laugh out loud. I can't remember the last time I opened a gift that made me laugh out loud like that, and I use it all the time. (laughs) And it was really a practical gift. It was fantastic. It was like really a great gift. It was just so surprising. Like if you had told me, okay, you can't eat again until you guess what's in this package from Miranda <laughs> July, I never would have guessed a clothes steamer. Well, you know, the character in that story in Morris Bivey needed a clothes steamer. <laughs> I didn't even think of that. If she'd had that in the bathroom with her, she wouldn't have had to, you know, fess up. (laughs) And it looked like it cost like $12, and that was good, too, because if it had been like a top-of-the-line clothes steamer, you know, you would have just felt like, you know, just like, (laughs) gosh, now I owe her an expensive gift. (laughs) It was just such a funny present to give somebody. Unless I'm remembering wrong, um... When you chose that story, you didn't really know very much about Miranda July. I think you hadn't seen her movies at that point. You just really liked the story. 
Now, this time you've chosen a story by Wells Tower, and I'm wondering if you made that choice in the same way or if you're more familiar with Tower's body of work. I read Everything Ravaged, Everything Burned. I think mm-hmm. I think a bookseller put it in my hands in a bookstore, and it was the best book that I read that year. I just And I turned to it again and again. He is a thrilling writer, a, just a, a genius. And every one of the stories in that book just meant so much to me. It just, I felt like he invented writing. In what, in what way? What is it about his writing that's so special for you? Well, he'll describe something in a way that you think, oh, my God, I'd never, I never saw it that way before. Like, why can't I have his eyes? Why can't I just go through the world with his eyes? Everything would be so new and everything would be so fresh. Everything I, I take for granted, everything I think of is so dull. He wouldn't <laughs> see it that way. Why can't I? <laughs> I don't mean uh-huh. that, like, oh, I'm jealous that I can't write like him, which, I mean, I'm just glad somebody can write like him. I, I would be jealous, but who's it going to help, right? <laughs> so the details that he remembers, you know, like in this story, like there's a little a, a, a seed pod that explodes, and one of the little seeds goes into the cuff of a policeman's pants. Who would, who would notice that? You could show me a film of that, and I wouldn't notice it. That's true. And it's just the perfect detail that his narr- that his character notices, and that makes his character so specific. Like, if you were going to create an 11-year-old boy, I mean, I, I just feel like most of us would just say, oh, I reached for my baseball cards, or I reached for the computer game, and then Mom said, dinner time, and yawn, you know? <laughs> but he just from the things that this child notices, create such an unforgettable three-dimensional character. Is it um, an 11-year-old boy that you identify with? Do you read this and think, oh, that's how I saw it, but I never noted it? You know, I recently saw that movie, Boyhood, and Mm -hmm. I enjoyed the movie, but, and I'm not putting the movie down in any way, but I think this story does so much more to capture just the shit of being an 11-year-old boy in America. <laughs> and you don't even have to have had a stepfather. You know, it's just like when the kid worries about what's going to happen two years from now when it's time to have sex. I mean, to worry about that in advance, you know, and be 11 <laughs> years old. We'll talk some more after the story. And now here's David Sedaris reading Leopard by Wells Tower. Leopard. Good morning. You have not slept well. Don't open your eyes. Stick out your tongue. Search for the little sore above your upper lip. Pray that it healed in the night. No luck. Still there, rough to the tongue. And though it's very small, not even the diameter of a pencil eraser, it feels much larger. Your mother says it's a harmless fungal infection, and she pities you less for it than she should. A tiny hamburger is what the fungus resembles, cracked and brown and perfectly centered in the little fluted area between your septum and upper lip. Yesterday in the cafeteria, Josh Mohorn pointed out the similarity before a table of your friends, a painful thing considering how much you would like to be Josh Mohorn. He turned to you and said, Hey, Yancey, do me a favor. What's up, you said, 
excited by the rare pleasure of Josh's attention. Could you take that seat down there, he said, gesturing toward the far end of the table. I can't eat my lunch with your fucking burger in my face. Even you had to admire the succinct poetry of the line, which launched an instant craze of everyone jeering and calling you Burger King or Patty or All Beef, the name that stuck for the rest of the day and that will surely greet you this morning at school. You are eleven years old, the age that our essences begin revealing themselves irremediably to us and to the world. Just as Josh Mulhorn is irremediably a soccer ace and a clothes ace with feathered hair and white box, you are irremediably a fungus man. Don't go to school today. Play sick. Your mother comes in to wake you. Around the house she wears paint-spattered jeans and old t-shirts through whose slack sleeves you often catch sight of her underarm hair. But this morning she is dressed for work in a blue sateen blouse and white slacks, clothes that speak of a secret life. I don't feel good, you tell your mother. Where, in your stomach? Yeah, you say. Oh, God, she says, I hope it's not that thing that's been going around. I don't know what it is, you say, panting shallowly. It just really hurts. She puts her hand on your forehead and holds it there. Her palm is dry and cool. You have always admired her hands, long, thin fingers and clean, ridged nails that never need polish. On her right index finger knuckle is a perfect red dot, like a stamp of quality from the manufacturer. She slips her fingers down to your chest. Your skin is slick with sweat. You slept in your old school clothes, jeans and a windbreaker, as you always do, amid the rustling mess of books and magazines piled in drifts on your bed. You will be twelve next year, but you usually still enjoy the solid, imperturbable sleep of a small child. You could get eight hours of good rest in a crate. Your mother's fingers graze your sternum, and this makes you uncomfortable. A spray of large and painful pimples recently sprouted there. They throb with humiliated awareness when your mother touches them. This area of your body is a source of worry, in part because, years ago, a babysitter told you that all boys in their teenage years develop a soft spot in their chests like a baby's fontanelle, and that you could kill somebody by punching him in that place. The babysitter was quite a liar, you realize now, even worse than you. He told you that in Florida there lived a race of murderous clowns who carried kitchen knives and who would come after you if you committed a sin. He also said that doctors performed abortions by delivering the baby and then putting it in a bucket and letting it cry to death. Still, you were not sure whether the babysitter was lying about the soft spot. The idea of it intrigues you. You writhe away from your mother's hand. What, you want to stay home? Swallow again. Close your eyes. I don't know. I guess. Okay. She kisses you and stands, ducking her head so as not to bash it on the top bunk, which is heaped with old blankets and boxes of your mother's stuff. She is right to be careful. Not long ago, you hit your head on it so forcefully that a hard white light went on behind your eyes. In your fury, you attack the bed with your survival knife, inflicting minor, unsatisfying wounds. The little chips and gouges in the frame are a dispiriting reminder of the pointless assault. 
On the shelf behind your head sits the tape deck your father bought you for your 10th birthday. You have stacks of cassettes full of your favorite songs recorded off the radio, so all of them start a few seconds in, but you don't mind. You'd like to listen to your tapes, but you can hear your stepfather moving around in the kitchen. He is raising a din of clanking pots and clumsy feet so loud you figure he must be doing it on purpose. You don't touch the tape deck because you don't want him to know you're awake. He and your mother live on twenty acres in thick woods. Your stepfather fancies himself a kind of socialist frontiersman, and he doesn't have a normal job. He is too busy tending the three large gardens on the property and splitting logs for the wood-burning furnace he persuaded your mother to buy. He values hard work above everything, and every time you turn around, your stepfather is there, putting a broom in your hand or giving you a load of wet laundry to hang up or telling you to fetch firewood or scrub the sink or dig a hole. I have a job for you, is your stepfather's catchphrase, and you sometimes imitate it to make your mother laugh. You rub your thumb along the soft white flesh of your forearm, which is still discolored from a job you had to do last summer. Your stepfather made you clear about an acre of honeysuckle, scrub, and vine where he wanted to put in a shed. Halfway through, when he and your mother were away, you doused the jungle with paint stripper and set it on fire. You were careful to keep the hose handy, and the blaze didn't get out of control. You knocked out three days of work and one hour of fire, but the smoke covered you. And two days later, you had poison ivy in a monstrous way. Blisters popped out on your hands, neck, and eyelids. Then they broke and crusted over into a multitude of little brown jewels. The doctor said it could have killed you if you had breathed in the smoke. When you heard that, you were sorry you hadn't taken a lungful or two, not enough to do you in, but you liked the idea of having to spend some time in an oxygen tent because of a job your stepfather made you do. If you say no to your stepfather, this is known as lip. I'm sick of your lip, he says, or I've had it with your fucking lip. He is a thin, delicate man with wireframe glasses, but neither his slightness nor his way of talking like a corny Hollywood thug makes you any less afraid of him. He slapped you a few times. Not long ago, your father stopped by to pick you up, and your stepfather argued with him. He pushed your father down, and then he picked up a stone the size of a football and made like he was going to throw it at your father's head, but he just tossed it away and laughed. For years to come, whenever you think of your father, the image of him cowering on the lawn, his hands clutching his skull in forlorn defense against the crushing stone, will be part of the picture. You were counting the days until you turned 16, which you've arbitrarily chosen is the age at which you'll be able to take your stepfather in a fight. At 12.30, you hear the front door creak and slap, and then the hornetish whine of your stepfather's leaf grinder starting up. He is making mulch again, a substance he seems to prize over food or money. Now it is safe to get out of bed. You go into the kitchen and pour yourself a large bowl of cornflakes. Take it into your mother and stepdad's bedroom, which contains the only television in the house. You are delighted to find I Dream of Jeannie on one of the U channels. Jeannie is miffed because, as an engagement present, Major Nelson's friends have crammed the house with the artwork of a terrible genius, sculptures that gurgle with digestion sounds. 
Barbara Eden's belly excites you enormously. You grope into your underwear. Almost immediately, you hear the leaf grinder power down. You turn off the TV, run into the kitchen, and arrange yourself at the table. Your stepfather comes in, trailing a rich vegetable aroma. Bits of leaf and bark cling to his glistening arms and chest. Feeling better, he asks. Not really, you say. He claps a rough hand to your forehead. His hand smells deliciously of gasoline. You don't feel hot to me. It's my stomach that hurts. You puke? No, you admit. You must be feeling better or you wouldn't be having that milk. If you're ready for milk, you must be getting better. You don't see what milk has to do with anything, but you don't want to argue with him. I've got a headache, you say. I thought I should eat something is all. He sneers suspiciously and snorts through his nose. As a young liar, you can generally get pretty far on the assumption that adults have more important things to worry about than catching out a kid for every little fraud he tries to pull. But your stepfather seems to have plenty of time to study and doubt everything that comes out of your mouth. He will spend days gathering evidence to prove that those are your teeth marks on a pen you said you hadn't chewed. Your hatred of your stepfather is all-consuming and unceasing, but this is only because your world is still small, and your stepfather assumes an outsized significance in the story of your life, that your stepfather seems to dislike you with an energy and a relentlessness to match your own only seems proof that your mother is married to a petty and dangerous child. You should get some fresh air, your stepfather says. How about you go get the mail? This is not fair. The driveway is a half mile of rutted gravel that takes 15 minutes to walk, and as far as your stepfather knows, you're sick. Why? Mom will get it when she comes back for lunch. You go get it, your stepfather says. The air will do you good. Actually, I'm still a little dizzy. I'll bet a hot fudge Sunday you survive. You set off across the lawn in bare feet. The earth under your toes is plush with mole tunnels. It is a hot summer day. The clarity of the sky makes the trees look like television props with a blue screen behind them. You've already lost your summer calluses, and the driveway gravel is sharp, causing you to walk with a jouncing, high-elbowed gait like a bird trying to take flight. You blame your stepfather for the unpleasantness of the gravel, and every few feet you pick up a handful and fling it into the woods, hoping that those handfuls will cost a lot of money to replace. You pass the wood piles on the chicken house, past the stretch of woods where you once built a handsome lean-to encircling the bottom of an oak tree. It was a pretty good one, made of windfall limbs peeled smooth with a draw knife and thatched with pine straw. One day, a boy from the new neighborhood on the far side of the woods showed up, and you had words. The next day you found the lean-to's ribs scattered across the clearing and your cache of untempting snacks, raw cashews, banana chips, emptied in the dirt. You mentioned the vandalism to your stepfather, and on a Sunday morning when the boy and his family were at church, the two of you hiked through the woods and destroyed the expensive treehouse on the boy's parents' property. Your stepfather tore off the tin roof and smashed the ladder with a crowbar. 
You broke the glass windows with stones, and you ached with the power of it, the two of you together, and the same wild, righteous tribe. You open the mailbox. It's crammed solid with magazines, bills, catalogs, and advertising circulars displaying red galleries of grocery store beef, the sight of which make the sore on your lip pulse. There must be 15 pounds of mail, a sliding load that no sick person should have to carry. On top of the heap, something catches your eye. It is a handmade flyer with a Xerox photograph of what appears to be a leopard. Lost pet, reads the flyer, with the phone number below. A breeze starts down your neck. You turn and look into the woods, though the leaves have not yet fallen, and you can't see twenty feet. You turn back to the flyer. The leopard looks scrawny and unfearsome, but your heart beats a little harder, knowing that it might be out there, moving in the dull pine wastes near your home, its spotted paws treading silently over the tree roots, the pine needles, and the leaf-covered troves of ancient beer cans and patent medicine bottles. With the leopard out there, the woods seem famous now. Far up the driveway, you can once again hear the whine of the leaf grinder starting up, a noise of startling crudeness and stupidity, an insult to the tickings and subtle movements of the living forest all around you. If this leopard is out here somewhere, it is surely offended by your stepfather's desecration of the silence. It would be no trouble for a leopard to sneak up behind him and carry him off, leaving no trace. It is nearly one o'clock, the hour that your mother comes home for lunch. You do not want to be alone in the house with your stepfather. It still angers you that he has sent you down the driveway on your sick day, your special day of rest. You take a dozen steps, and then a plan suggests itself. Very carefully, you litter the mail in a haphazard fan on the driveway gravel so that it looks as though it were dumped there suddenly. You ease yourself down into a tire rut, splaying your arms and legs in the attitude of someone stricken by a fainting spell. When your mother's car swings into the driveway, she will find you there. She may have to stand on the brakes to keep from running you over, but you are far enough up the driveway that you don't think she could hit you by mistake. She'll come to you crying and concerned. You'll let her coax it out of you, the story of how your stepfather made you get the mail. Don't move. Don't mind the gravel digging into your cheek. Don't spoil the scene. She might not buy it anyway. Already she halfway believes what your stepfather has been telling her about you that you were a junior con man who can't open his mouth without a lie coming out. An insect, probably a harmless black ant, troops up the back of your leg. Many minutes go by. As time passes, the giddy elation you felt at first at the brilliance of your stratagem begins eroding into shame. You decide you will wait until ten cars have rushed past on the blacktop road, and if your mother hasn't arrived by then, you'll get up and walk back into the house. It's the sixth car that you hear break suddenly, reverse, and then roll into the drive. It's not your mother's car. It is a car with a large, smoothly whirring engine. Maybe it's UPS or someone turning around. Be still. A door opens, and your tongue thickens hotly with alarm. You keep your eyes shut tight. 
shoes with hard soles crunch toward you on the gravel. Someone leans over you. Whoa, buddy. Hey, hey. It is a man's voice, high and nervous. A hand nudges your shoulder. Come on now, pal. The man draws halting breaths. It startles you when warm fingers find the side of your neck, searching for your pulse. Allow your eyes to open, taking care to flutter them as movie actors do when waking from a swoon. What first thrills your vision is a shoe of gleaming black leather, possibly plastic, mounting to a gray trouser leg of synthetic fabric so clean and sharply creased it could have been cast in a mold. You glimpse the man's belt where a large black pistol sits in a holster, and then up to the chrome badge on his clean gray shirt. He is young, his eyes bulging from a large doughy face bracketed by blonde sideburns that haven't filled in. Take it easy now, he says. Let's just take it easy. If anyone needs to take it easy, it is not you but the policeman. His thick neck shifts in his collar assessing the condition of your body with the edgy scrutiny of a rooster tracking a beetle. You okay, he asks. You in pain? You bleeding anywhere? I, I don't think so. You live up there? Yeah, yeah, I'm fine, you say. You sit up. The policeman puts his hand on your shoulder. Easy, he rubs his eye. Jesus, you gave me a hell of a scare, buddy. I saw you, and then that male all scattered around. I thought, oh, God damn. I thought maybe I had a drive-by shooting on my hands, or at least a hit and run. Look at this, he says, presenting his hip to show that he's undone the little holster snap that keeps his pistol in place. He seems too young and nervous to be trusted with a gun. He asks how you're feeling and whether you've had fainting spells before. No, I'm fine, you tell him, getting up, but thanks and everything. Begin gathering the mail. With any luck, he'll get back in his idling cruiser and leave. Your mother will be returning any minute. There isn't much time to jog up to the bend in the driveway, out of sight of the road, and reassemble the spectacle. The policeman puts a thick hand on your arm. Come on. Come on in the car and get cool. With the policeman's help, you gather up the envelopes and catalogs. He ushers you into the passenger side of the cruiser and slants each of the dashboard vents so that they are all blowing at you. He races the engine. The breeze pouring on you is sumptuously cold and laced with the faint smell of medicine like the waiting room of a dentist's office. Nothing your mother owns smells bright and clean like this. Jutting up from the dash is a shotgun and a metal brace. Scattered on the bench seat are other police tools, a big black flashlight, a notepad, and a vaguely martial leather case. Somehow, these things are more genuine and frightening than the shotgun, whose exact resemblance to what you've seen in movies makes it seem unreal. You feeling okay? he asks again. Not dizzy or nothing? No, you say. I'm fine now. Totally. What's this thing here, he asks, pointing at his lip to indicate the hamburger. I, I had that before. It's just a fungus. The policeman looks at you for a moment, his nostrils hoist in distaste. Then he unhitches his radio. 
205-205, he says. You can kill that call to Rogers Road. It's just a kid who got a little dizzy and passed out. It's copacetic now, he says, winking at you, though you are not sure why. It occurs to you that you despise him a little for being so easily fooled. The policeman goes on talking to you. Tell you one thing, he says. I won't need my coffee break this afternoon. After seeing you lying there like that, I'll be keyed up all day. I mean, damn, I was sure we had another dead kid on our hands. Your ears prick up at that word. Another. Last spring, Samantha Mealy, a nine-year-old girl from your elementary school, was found naked in a maple tree on the public golf course, a length of clothesline around her neck. In fact, you'd met her at the bus stop just a few weeks before she died. She'd been a brassy, fearless little girl with a raucous laugh. On that afternoon, much to the chagrin of her older brother, she'd been trying to pull some boy's pants down and cussing out loud for fun. She was an exciting girl. You have not had your first kiss, but you are already worried about sex. Just two grades ahead of you, kids are having it already. When you learned that the man who killed Samantha Mealy had raped her before he tied the noose around her neck, what occurred to you was this. At least she didn't die a virgin, a thought you cannot share with even your wickedest friends. You feel a manic impulse to start talking to keep yourself from being alone with thoughts of Samantha Mealy's murder. You show the leopard flyer to the policeman. Have you heard about this, you say? There's a leopard running around out there. He accepts the sheet and looks it over. Somebody had it for a pet, you say. See, I do not know who would have this thing at their residence, but I'll tell you one thing for sure. They're probably a dangerous element. Drug lords, you say. Could be bikers, maybe, the policeman says. I swear this whole area is changing. You just don't know anymore. Used to be this was a nice little town. Now it's turning into one of those places where anything can happen. He passes the flyer back to you. You reach for the door. So, thanks, you tell the policeman. I should probably get going. My dad's probably wondering where I am. You pull the door handle. It's locked. Oh, you ain't walking anywhere, buddy, he tells you with a stern fondness that makes you uneasy. I'll drive you. You keel over again and knock your head. I'm in real trouble. He puts the cruiser into drive, and the car rolls forward. Untrimmed thorns and sapling limbs clutch at the car with intermittent shrieks that embarrass you. Thanks, you tell the policeman once the house comes into view. Thanks for the lift and everything. He turns in the direction of the leaf grinder where your stepfather stands with his back turned. That your dad, he asks? Probably ought to talk to him. You don't want him to, but there's nothing you can do. Together, you and the policeman walk across the lawn to your stepfather. The lawn is choked with a special weed that explodes seeds when you touch it. Little clouds detonate around the policeman's shiny shoes and land in his trouser cuffs. Your stepfather keeps feeding leaves into his grinder until the policeman is about three feet away. Then he turns. He narrows his eyes at the policeman, and then at you. The sweat is pouring off him, curling the hair on his bare chest into dozens of dark whirls. He turns the grinder off, looking hostile and put off. Who are you? he asks. Officer Barron, sir, I was driving past and I found your son lying in the driveway. He gave me a real scare. 
Hmm, your stepfather turns to you. The muscles around his eyes are tense. What were you doing lying in the driveway? I don't know, you say. I just got dizzy and then I woke up. I guess I passed out. That male was all scattered around and he was lying on his face, the policeman says. I didn't know what had happened to him. He gave me a scare. I was thinking maybe he'd been shot. Maybe you sat down and then you fell asleep, your stepfather says after a moment. That's probably what happened. I didn't sit down, you say. It's just like him to question your story, even with an officer of the law beside you, corroborating it. I fell. Your stepfather walks toward you. He takes your chin in his thumb and forefinger and turns your face back and forth as though it were a piece of merchandise he was thinking about buying. You must have fallen pretty easy, he says. When you faint, you go down hard. You don't have any cuts. I don't know how I fell, you say. I wasn't there watching. All right, go inside now, your stepfather says. But you don't move. You don't want to. The sun slips behind a cloud. Something you don't know what is about to happen. You feel it as you stand there, holding the mail, scraping the sharp edge of a magazine against your chin, out of which a single precious hair has lately dared to curl. Hell of a thing that I saw him when I did, the policeman says. He seems to be angling for a handshake or words of gratitude from your stepfather, and you pity him for that. Who knows? Somebody could have pulled in quick and run him over. It's a lucky thing. Yeah, pretty lucky, your stepfather says. Then he turns to you. Go on inside. Wait for your mother. But you stand where you are. Then, off in the woods behind the clothesline, you hear a branch snap and the sound of something big tussling in the wooded shade. Your breathing goes quick and shallow. You close your eyes. Picture it. The leopard its shoulders rising and falling as it lopes across the lawn. Hey, your stepfather says, lightly slapping your cheek. What's the matter with you? Blacking out again? Don't answer. Listen. Be still. That was David Sedaris reading Leopard by Wells Tower. The story was published in The New Yorker in November of 2008 and included in Tower's collection Everything Ravaged, Everything Burned, which was published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux in 2009. So, David, the most immediately glaring thing about this story is the fact that it's told in the second person, which is something most, you know, writing teach. The New Yorker Festival is back, and it's our 21st year. Undeterred by COVID, we're coming to you virtually with a fantastic lineup, and you can enjoy it all without even putting on your shoes. Chris Rock is joining us, Jerry Seinfeld and Steve Martin too, and a performance in conversation with Fiona Apple. There's also Elizabeth Warren and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Eric Holder, and many more. You can find out everything that's happening and buy tickets at newyorker.com festival. Again, that's newyorker.com festival. See you there. advise against uh, it's it's a device that calls attention to itself so strongly that if you do it you sort of have to do it perfectly do you think that it adds to this story what i think makes it so interesting in this story is that at the beginning of the story it says uh you know good morning you open your eyes and i 
because it's in the second person, then I think, okay, yeah, I open my eyes all the time. You know, <laughs> the, the character and I are the same at this point. And then it says, you do this, you do that. But then it gets progressively out of control. But by that time, you're already in the character's shoes. And so the things that you're doing, pretending to have fainted in a driveway, you're there and you're doing it. And you are the character. And when, when it's done poorly, the transference doesn't happen, you know, when it's done poorly. I just think he does a great job of it here. And I think it would be a completely different story if he had written in the third person or in the first person. I mean, the second person works perfectly here. You know, it's interesting. I asked him about that choice, and, and he said, I'll just read it to you. He said, I drafted the story in first person initially, but it lapsed into cutesiness. Then I took a whack at it in third, but the narration became too sneering and merciless. Second person ended up being the purest route into the boy's head. So I suppose that's partly what you're saying. It, it, it's a purest route into the boy's head, but also into our heads. Into our hearts as well. I think. Right. I mean, I really feel this story, and I don't know if it's because I was an 11-year-old boy. I don't know if that means that I feel it more than you. <laughs> Do you think that that he's an average 11-year-old boy, or is he a, a strange one? I think that he's pretty average. I mean, when you're 11 years old, you do things like that. You know, you lie down in the driveway. I mean, I did that myself. You know, <laughs> I lie down in the driveway so my parents would think that something awful had happened to me. Um, I, I do it now. I mean, <laughs> if I hear Hugh coming into the house, I'll do it on the floor. Because <laughs> last year I fell off a ladder, and I, and I fell off a ladder from a dis height of about, I don't know, nine feet. I was in the house, and I landed right on my side, and I wound up like fracturing eight ribs oh. and uh Hugh came into he heard the crash he came in and he said why are you wearing those pants you know <laughs> I don't even know who you are anymore <laughs> and and I I was lying there and I thought my back was broken so I do it all the time now and that he would just come in and find me there and I'll do it like I'll lie on the stairs you know with my head but it's he captures that in the story too Wells Tower does how you think, oh, this is perfect, and then a few minutes pass. <laughs> you think, how long can I keep this up? And then you start feeling dumb about it. <laughs> the sympathy didn't come in time. No, no, not for me. And I love what happens. I love the cop who stops in this story. I, I just love that person. I love how, he's, how Wells Tower has written him, and I like how I love his kindness. And when he's yeah. digging, like, for a handshake or for some thanks from the stepfather, and, and the boy looks at him and just pities him for even trying yeah. to well, get he knows gratitude. The stepfather. It, you, you see a lot of stories like this where, like, the stepfather's like a super monster, you know? And this guy's not a super monster. I mean, you wouldn't want to... Uh, I wouldn't want to live in his house, but he's not that horrible of a person. I feel that the real moment when you know him is when the kid is saying, you know, most people, they figure, okay, well, that kid's telling a lie, but then they've got a lot of other stuff in their life, and they have to think about 
getting the radiator fixed on the car or something, and they don't, they don't really have the time to dwell on disliking a child, right, or catching out all his lies. And that's such a little great detail, too, about, you know, the stepfather catching you out on that lie about that those are your tooth marks on that pen that you said you hadn't <laughs> chewed on. Why, why do you think the stepfather is so involved in trying to, to prove that this kid lies? Why, why is he so eager to dominate an 11-year-old? I think because he didn't have a child of his own. Plus, he's probably jealous of the affections that the mother gives to her kid. But when you don't have a child on your own, of your own, then you're, you know, then you can really focus on, you know, on somebody, what a brat somebody is, or why aren't they, why are they so, such a picky eater? But if you do have children, you think, ah, it's just a phase, I'll grow out of it. Right. I think he just wants a slave, you know, the stepfather. <laughs> I find it really interesting that the boy constantly refers to himself as a liar and talks about working on his lies. But then he resents his stepfather's implication that he's always lying, you know, or, or calling him a, a junior con man. You know, as you were saying, you become this boy when you when you read the story or hear the story. At the same time, he's so specific. You know, he's he's picked on at school. He sleeps in his windbreaker in a pile of magazines and books. He attacks his bed with his with a knife. He seems to have pretty extreme reactions to things. But I, you know, I think that's part of Wells Tower's brilliance, though, is that really I think. A lot of 11-year-olds have these thoughts or do these things, but you forget it. And if you're even trying to write about yourself as an 11-year-old, you forget those things. You know, I thought it was such a, like, so many great details in this story is, like, when the kid's walking on the driveway and it says, you've already lost your summer calluses. And it's like, oh, right, I remember that. I remember mm -hmm. you'd go barefoot all summer and then you could really walk on coals you know, then the autumn comes and your feet become tender again. Who would have remembered that? <laughs> when he's talking about this, you know, you're 11 years old, but still you can get the sleep of a child, the undisturbed sleep of a child. I thought that was such a good little detail, too. You know, like that almost drug sleep you get when you're really young. Mm -hmm. But when it said uh, you could get eight hours of rest in a crate, <laughs> such a good line. <laughs> And about the abortion, the the uh, the rumor that he'd heard about uh, the abortion doctor uh, putting the baby in a bucket and letting it cry to death. Yeah, that 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 babysitter was sort of evil who told him all these stories. And why do you think he becomes so obsessed with this idea that the boys develop this potentially fatal soft spot in their chests when they grow up? <laughs> Such an but odd sometimes image. somebody just tells you something and it sticks. I mean, I remember yeah. when I was 19, a friend of mine was on a ladder and I was on the ground. And he said, you know, you have a bald spot on the back of your head. I did not touch the back of my head or look at the back of my head. When a barber would hold up a mirror, I'd shut my eyes. And I didn't have a bald <laughs> spot on the back. I mean, I do now, but <laughs> I didn't back then. I think you and ladders don't mix well. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Another thing I liked is uh, the kid has a tape player that he tapes songs off the radio, and they usually start a few seconds in. And that was another thing. And I thought, yes, I have all these tapes, you know, from the 1980s, and I would wait for my favorite song to come on, and then I would tape it off the radio, and always, you know, yeah. would start like a few seconds in. That was just such a 
a detail that connected me with this story. Yeah. Just one in dozens of them. Gosh, he's a good writer. <laughs> it's interesting. You know, this, the, he captures this moment in this boy's life where he's, he's on the cusp of not being a kid anymore. He's still a kid, but he's kind of, you know, he's lusting after Barbara Eden. He's got, he's got one hair coming out of his chin. He's also, to my mind, slightly strangely aware of his mother's physical mm-hmm. characteristics, you know, her underarm hair, her perfect fingernails. He loves her hands. Um, so some, something seems to be sort of waking up in him. But the one thing that seems the most childlike part of him that comes in at the end of this story is a child's sense of wonder. And when he thinks he hears or imagines that he hears the leopard in the woods, that's awoken. And and that's the most beautiful part of being a child. And to me, it's lovely to see that at the end of the story. I mean, it doesn't matter to me if the leopard's actually there or not, but it awakens a sense of wonder in him. And it just sort of redeems all the horribleness that's come before I mean, horribleness. I mean, it's not like, you know, he lives in a war zone and, you know, yeah. he can't find his artificial leg, you know. I mean, you know, he's trying to get by with the stepfather and that moment where his stepfather humiliates his father and then he, now he can no longer look at his father without seeing him on the ground cowering. That's such a great little scene. You know, it just it just reminds you, too, of your imagination as a child, you know, and just how it was limitless. And it really, if you believe in Santa Claus, you believe in anything, you know. <laughs> so you'll <laughs> believe that you have a soft spot in your chest and that a doctor puts a fetus in a bucket and let it, lets it cry itself to death. But you'll mm. also believe that you're being watched by a leopard. Yeah. Is that leopard a symbol? Well, you know, I've been writing myself long enough to know that, you know, sometimes, you know, you have a story that's in a textbook and kids have to read it and write an essay on it. And they'll often ask themselves, you know, they have to answer questions like that. You know, is this a symbol for... Mm -hmm. And I don't really know anybody who writes that way. I don't know anybody who sits down and says you know, I'm going to use a moth as a symbol of man's inhumanity to man. So generally when I read something like that, I think, gosh, where did that leopard come from? Like, you know, did somebody slip that under his door one day or did he? There's a magazine my sister gave me once called The Animal Finder's Guide. And it was just exotic pets and it was people selling and swapping exotic pets, you know, like baby hippos for sale. (laughs) You think... Who on earth wants a hippo? Or where are you going to put a hippo? Or, and they and they had a lot of big cats in there too. You know, and and really, it's crazy. If 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 you were to find out how many tigers live in the tri-state area, you'd probably be shocked. And you'd think, who on <laughs> earth owns a tiger? But but people do. So, I I would imagine that Wells Tower came across something about a leopard, or, but I I don't think he sat down and consciously thought that he would use it as a symbol of anything. But boy, if you were going to provoke a kid's imagination, though, I can't really think of anything better. 
And I like the fact, too, <laughs> that it's not a scary-looking leopard. It's just kind of a defeated-looking leopard. It's sort but, of scrawny and little. Yeah. but he's Domesticated, but not quite. He's empowering it with his imagination. Now, when you, when you make the leopard the title of the story as the author, you're probably saying something about the importance of it. That's an interesting thing, too, with titles, with stories. Because, I mean, there have been times in my life when I've said to the editor, do you have any ideas for a title? And the editor will come up with a great idea for a title. I have no idea what I would have titled this story. But you're right, it does draw more attention to it, and it doesn't come in until the end of it. You know, I mean, it's relatively late in the story that he finds the flyer for the leopard. Um, that's fine by me. <laughs> you know, going back to something you said earlier, that the stepfather isn't a monster. You know, there's that one moment that, only actually one moment in the whole story that was sort of redeeming for me, which is when he takes the boy to destroy the treehouse of mm. another boy who's... <laughs> who's Attacked his little treehouse. Um, um, actually, you're completely right. Can I take that back? Because I'd forgotten <laughs> that he pushed the kid's father on the ground and acted like he was going to crush his head with a rock. I mean, that's yeah. pretty yeah. much <laughs> as monstrous as it gets. I think maybe what I meant was he doesn't look like a monster, you know, that he just looks like a, you know, he's got wireframe gla wire glasses and he's not, mm -hmm. you know, he's not a big hulking. If you were going to cast him, you wouldn't. You you wouldn't cast Brutus, you know, in his no, no, in his role. But yeah, I don't know what I was thinking. He's an asshole. He's a complete <laughs> asshole. The stepfather. Yeah, yeah. Except that he really loves a fight. So when when he can be on the good side of a fight, he goes for it. You know, this other boy's treehouse. Yeah, you gotta wonder what kind of a man would do that. <laughs> I, I mean, my father might have gone and spoken to the other kid's father, but it's not like, yeah, give me a crowbar. Let's go over there and fuck it up. <laughs> it's, the, it's the only happy memory this boy has of his stepfather. Yeah, and it's a weird one, too, you know, yeah. that they would be together in that. Yeah. When he's in the driveway and he's staging this scene, is it simply he just wants sympathy from his mother? He wants his mother to think his stepfather's been awful to him. Is there anything else going on? No, I think he just wants, you know, that would just have been so delicious if his mother had pulled in the driveway and found him and, like, you know, gone back to the stepfather and, how dare you, I told you he was sick and you made him. But the stepfather's so astute. Like, why aren't there any cuts on your face? You know, he fell on gravel. <laughs> he just sees through everything. Yeah. Do, do you think that's because he... He used to be a boy like this. Do you think he sees something of himself there? No, I think it's like what the character says, that the stepfather genuinely hates him, <laughs> you know, and, and devotes time to thinking about reasons why he hates him so much. Yeah. It would be awful. I mean, to, to live in a house like that where you felt like there was such a dark force against you and that the only time that you... We united. It was in hurting somebody else. Yeah. I mean, you do sort of wonder what becomes of this boy. But again, it was that leopard, you know, or the idea of the leopard appearing at the end of the story that sort of lifted it up for me and thought, well, you still have that. It's a sense of possible escape or possible revenge on his stepfather. Yeah, or, you know, the power of imagination. 
You know, one thing that's interesting about the voice here is we are in the mind of an 11-year-old. We are, we're seeing his, his motivations, his lies, his worries. At the same time, we're also in some later version of this character, I think. You, you know, a kid who's 11 is not going to think things like your hatred of your stepfather is all-consuming and unceasing, but this is only because your world is still small and your stepfather assumes an outsized significance in the story of your life. That's, a, that's an adult thought mm-hmm. looking back. It's sort of slippery, the tone of the narration. Yeah, I, I love that he inserted that in there. Yeah. And he does it a few times. I don't know if that's, what do you call that, like breaking the fourth wall or whatever it is, but he does it so astutely. I mean, you're right, that's an adult's realization. I guess he could have written years from now, you would realize, blah, 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 but that would make it more, draw more attention to it. Mm-hmm. This, he does this so quietly every now and then. Yeah, just throws us a bone as adult readers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, I guess, suppose he breaks a rule, but um, I don't know, he does it so well. You know, like sometimes somebody breaks a rule, but you think like, oh, you did it so well, who cares? <laughs> when you read something as a writer, you know, you notice things like that, and you always tend to think, well, gosh, I'm going to do that too. And then you try it, and it just feels like you're trying to be somebody else. And so you just sit back and admire the people who genuinely and seemingly effortlessly do that. That's his real skill, and that's really rare. And, and I can't wait to read whatever he writes next. I just think he's super exciting. You know, I met him once. You know, it's funny. I People I admire, I, I expected him to be like 28 feet tall, you know. <laughs> I expected to... <laughs> It was in New York. There's this woman who uh, said, oh, gosh, well, I know him. Why don't we get together and have a drink? And normally I'd, I'd rather somebody else meet that person and tell me about it later. But <laughs> but I went, and I fully expected to look out the window and see his feet, you know, like he would be that towering <laughs> of a figure. And David's is lovely. So it ended well. You know, if I had to interview a writer who I admired, I would just sound like a high school student. Like, where do you get your ideas from? You know, I don't know how you're supposed to answer that, but I just am in, in awe of him. Well, thank you so much, David. Thank you, Deborah. David Sedaris's most recent book is Theft by Finding, Diaries, 1977 to 2002. A new collection of essays titled Calypso will be published in May. You can download more than 120 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, including one in which David Sedaris reads a story by Miranda July, or subscribe to the podcast for free in the Apple Podcast section of the iTunes Store. On the Writer's Voice podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts on iTunes. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff of NewYorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>